we're in Second uh, Samuel. I want to turn to that as we continue uh, our series in the life of David. And uh, this is the 11th chapter of Second Samuel. And we're going to read uh, selected passages here, and then I want to move to the 12th chapter. Follow the theme of what's happening here. Actually, I was saying to my wife that opening phrase there, I, ju- I just like it. it uh, you know, as, as if you've started a book, you know, in, in, in the spring at the time when the kings go off to war, and then you go. But let's stand together for the reading of God's word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rebbe. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. In the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now over to chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other is poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it, grew up with him and his children, It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Lord, add his blessings to the scriptures. Please be seated. So fathers, we we look at this. We pray that 
that even, even now it would be applicable to the, the situations we find ourselves in and the struggles that we see in this world of the rightness and the wrongness of how we relate to one another and your centeredness in our lives in all of that. We just pray that you speak through your word to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a very famous passage, and it's about what's in the human heart. And it teaches us at least three things that I want to bring to your attention this morning as we look at this. The first thing is the power of sin. We know what David did. We know what David did. He sleeps with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Uriah is off fighting in the military. She becomes pregnant. When David realizes she's pregnant, he had to cover this up. So he calls Uriah back from the front lines, ostensibly to report on how the battle's going. Tell me what's going on here. And he assumed that when Uriah came back from the battle, he would sleep with his wife. And then after a period of time, he would think that the child was his child. But Uriah says, I can't go home and sleep in my bed. I can't sleep with my wife while others are out there fighting and dying. I can't do that. Not going to do it. So David feels trapped. And he writes a letter to Joab, the captain of the, the commander. In verse 15, if you're following me, he says, Put Uriah in the front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw so he'll die. And Joab does this. David's army engages, and Uriah the Hittite dies. Do you know who Uriah was? Have you, have you looked at this uh, in the past? When David was a fugitive, and when David was being hunted down by Saul, there was a group of friends that voluntarily came around him to help him. They were called his mighty men. His mighty men. They risked their lives for David. One of them was Uriah the Hittite. This isn't just anybody. This is a man to whom David owes his life. David takes Uriah's wife, commits adultery, murders the man, and then he tries to cover it up. Over half of the Ten Commandments are broken here. Right? And look at in verse 14. This is an interesting thing to me. <laughs> David gives Uriah the note to send back to the commander It signs off on his death. He sends Uriah So the bearer of his own death certificate, back to the command, think of what's going on here. This is done by a man who wrote the Psalms. That's the thing. This is done by a man who wrote the Psalms, wrote incredible worship music, and, and, and a heart for God, poetry, including Psalms 40 and verse 8, which says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is in my heart. Your law is in my heart. The man who wrote that meant that. And he did this. Let that sink in. What does that teach us? 
a lot. It teaches us a lot. The seeds of the most terrible possible deeds live in every human heart. Every human heart. Even those converted by God. Those seeds are right now in your heart. That's the teaching. That's the teaching. Western civilization, we like to think about this, has abandoned the idea that every human being can be that sinful. We're just, we're just, they're, they're, we're all good. We're not that sinful. History records in World War II that the British and the American leaders, including FDR, when they heard reports of the Holocaust, of what was happening, they dismissed it. You remember, some of you remember. They dismissed it. Couldn't be. We're not like that. And FDR admitted that he couldn't accept the idea that the Germans were capable of doing this. The reasoning went something like this. How can a highly developed civilization that gives you Mozart and Bach produce this kind of genocide? Do you see the racial pride here? The racial pride? FDR and the others were saying, we understand that there are a lot of awful primitive civilizations out there, you know, that do stuff like this, but not us. Not us. Not Western civilization. We're not capable of this. Ukraine, Ukraine, Buffalo, just recently, we're not capable, there's got to be something wrong, we're not capable of these kinds of atrocities, we're good people, we're good people. A man by the name of C.E.M. Goad, a British philosopher, an agnostic, really. Before, after the World War II, he became a Christian. He wrote a book called The Recovery of Belief. The Recovery of Belief. And here's a paraphrase of his book. The view of evil implied by Marx and by modern psychotherapy is that evil is the byproduct of circumstances. And circumstances can be altered and eliminated. We've gotten rid of the idea that the human heart is filled with this evil or has this kind of evil. We say, well, if evil's being done, there's, it's got to be because of circumstances. Something happened. Certain things have happened to make people like that, to do those kinds of things. That's the reason why whenever there is some kind of horrible murder in a community, people will gather around and the neighbors will come around and say, well, he's such a nice guy. He's such a nice, nice guy. I can't, I can't believe he was capable all these years of doing that. In other words, I'm not capable of that. I'm nice. Circumstances must have done it. What happened to him? What happened to him? And when you see the atrocities of both Western and Eastern civilization, Goad says that view that view is intolerably shallow. 
It's because we have rejected the doctrine of original sin. We don't believe it anymore. We don't believe that we're, we could be that bad. We don't believe it anymore. We're always being disappointed now by failures because we just don't understand what's going on. And the behavior of people, the behavior of nations, the behavior of politicians, and above all, the recurrent fact of war, that there's war after war after war after war, and the atrocities that are coming, we just... Maybe I'm being too abstract. Let's get personal. Our society doesn't believe this anymore. But here's the point. You and I don't believe this. You and I don't believe this. Are you born again? Are you saved? You're a child of God? You've encountered God? You're capable of doing what David did. That's the point. You are capable of doing what David did. Think Abraham, the father, right? The father, repeatedly lying. You remember, every time Abraham goes to Egypt, he lies. He tells people Sarah is his sister, not his wife, to save his own skin. But what's he doing to her? Putting her in jeopardy. Repeatedly. Jacob, another of the fathers of the faith, constantly scheming and lying. Moses, so disobedient that God said, you can't, you can't go in the promised land. I won't let you. Peter, deny, 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 deny. David, you think you're better than them? You think you're better than them? And we say, well, I could never do that. I could, I could, I could never do this. And the minute you say that, you got problems. You got problems. Because the worst thing you could possibly believe is I'm incapable of that kind of sin. And that makes you capable. And here's why. Here's why. The seeds of these awful things are in your heart. And seeds are small, they're little things. Here's an acorn. Out of an acorn, comes a huge oak, right? Huge oak. On the surface, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And then out of that tree comes acorns and more acorns, and acorns provide other trees. You could um, technically cover the earth with trees. Again and again and again. Doesn't look like much but there it is. There it is. Look at your life. Look in your life at yourselves. Do you see self-pity? Do you see envy? Do you see hurt, pride, resentment? Do you see jealousy, self-centeredness? Do you see any seeds in your life? You get hurt by what somebody might say to you? Do you know what those can become if they fall in the right soil? the right soil, if they're watered properly. Yet we tolerate those things. We tolerate those things in our life because they're just little things. 
I'm not, not hurting anybody. I'm just little things. Right? You know why we think that? You know why we think that? Even those who say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm valuable because Jesus died for me and he loves me. But here's how our heart operates. Our self-image is based on being better than most people. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better. I'm okay. I'm better, you know. I'm more enlightened. I'm more upright. I'm more kind. I've done nice things. Our self-image is based on I'm better than other people. And you screen out the reality of what those seeds in your life are capable of doing. I'm okay. I'm okay. And so you live with them. You live with them. They sprout. You're shocked. It's your fault. It's your fault. The very best people, Christian, converted people, are capable of this. That's the point. That's what Scripture's saying here. David's a man after God's own heart, right? I mean, that's how it's... A man after God's own heart. I I read John Owen, 17th century uh, scholar. He said something that stayed with me for years. He said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Look for those seeds in your life. You can feel those things. Things you're tolerating, you shouldn't be tolerating. It's a whole lot easier to squash an acorn than to bring down an oak. So squash them. Be killing them in your heart, in your life. You're putting up with fantasies you shouldn't be putting up with. You're putting up perhaps with revenge of pride toward another, sexual fantasies, jealousy, envy, enormous self-absorption about how I look to other people. Just stuff, seeds, which in the right soil be killing sin or it will be killing you. The other thing we learn, and I heard people say, you know, they say, well, you know, this Bible that you Christians, you know, you're always talking about the Bible, this book, you know. I, I, look at, and they go on, look at, look at David, look at Abraham, Joseph, Peter. All your good guys are bad guys. All your good guys are bad guys. What's up with that? You Christians, there's like no good examples. Here's the point of the Bible. Here's the point of Scripture. God continually, persistently works with and gives grace to people who don't deserve it. Don't deserve it. Don't seek it. Don't appreciate it when they get it. The point is the best people who have ever lived have not, will not, cannot overcome their own sins, their own self-centeredness. But if they cling to the grace and mercy of God, they will triumph. That's the point. That's the point of Scripture. That's the point of the Bible. So first thing, the power of sin. 
Don't underestimate the power of sin. Secondly, is this idea of grace. And I would, I would like to say the shrewdness of grace. And the shrewd. Now watch what happens here in Scripture. God sends Nathan the prophet to David, and we expect fireworks, right? Boy, this is going to be good. Here he comes. We know David's where he's at. Here comes the prophet of God. And Nathan the prophet comes. We expect, you liar, you murderer, you adulterer. But instead, he says, I'd like to talk to you about a case between a rich man and a poor man. Now realize back then, now think about it, just watch what's happening here. You didn't have separation of powers in government. You didn't have an executive branch and a judicial branch. The king was the judge. The king was the Supreme Court. What he said, done, done. And people would bring cases to him to rule as to what was the just thing to do. So Nathan says, your honor, I have a case I'd like to bring. And you remember, now think about this, David was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. He, he understands sheep, and all. He, he's a shepherd. In chapter 12, verse 3. He says, there was a rich man with many flocks and there was a poor man with one little lamb. He's like a member of his family. He drank from his cup, gross. <laughs> Slept in his arms, you know. Verse 4, look at verse 4. The rich man received a traveler. We know what happens in that culture. Hospitality is one of the cheap, uh, chief virtues of the ancient culture. So the rich man, he wanted to be socially right, and he was obligated to show hospitality to this guy who came, but he didn't want to bear the expense. He didn't want to use his own stuff. So he takes this man's lamb, he kills the lamb, and he gives it to the traveler. He says, now, O king, says Nathan, what should be done with this man? One thing David does here, one thing he says fits with Mosaic law. It's in verse 6. He says, the man who did this thing must pay for that lamb four times over. Restitution four, fourfold. That's in Mosaic law. That's what he said. But the other things David says are not in Mosaic law. Look at verse 5 in the scripture. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said, Surely as the Lord lives. Quite a remarkable oath, by the way. The man who did this deserves to die. Actually, that's excessive. <laughs> that's a bit much. There's nothing in Mosaic law that says stealing a cow or a goat or a lamb deserves capital punishment. But David wants this guy to die. Why? 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 Robert Alter, an expert in Hebrew narrative literature, says Nathan is exhibiting the reverse side of a guilty conscience. You're anxious to do right. You've done wrong, now you're anxious to do what's right. If you're guilty, it makes you unusually upright in all other areas of your life. 
as king. It's David's obligation to dispense justice and protect his kingdom, protect his subjects, his people. But in the affair of Uriah, he's done precisely the opposite. And as he listens to Nathan, David knows he's done something incredibly wrong. And he wants to be the champion of justice. He flares with anger. And Alter says, David, by his excessive anger, condemns himself. And now he becomes the helpless target of what Nathan will unleash. And unleash it, he does. He does. But notice, Nathan starts out carefully. He starts out quietly. And he says, uh, let me tell you about this case. Let me tell you about this case. And when David says that man ought to die, Nathan's got him trapped. He's got him trapped. And I believe his anger was the semi-conscious eruption of his own guilt in his life. His guilt is festering. It's festering. It's growing. That's why he's so furious. Does this man think there's no justice in my kingdom? Who is this man? Who is he? In the most direct application of a sermon to an audience in history, Nathan says, verse 7, you, you're the man. You're the man. And I'd like you to notice something extremely important. David was a liar. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. So why didn't this prophet of God burst into David's presence and say, you're a liar, you're a murderer, you're a d- I, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. Why beat around the bush? Why do you say, David, I got a case I want to talk to you about. Hey, come right out and say it. Just say it. Let's get this over with. What's up with this? Well, he's a prophet of God. Now think about this. He's a prophet of God, and he also reflects the grace of God. God never sets a person up for failure. Never. God never condemns someone in such a way that raises their defense mechanisms so high that there's no way that they will even think about repentance. It glorifies God. Think about it. It glorifies God if you tell the truth about sin. It glorifies God more if the person you're telling the truth to repents. Let that sink in. I know everyone talks about John 3.16, and and Andy read this last week, actually. John 3.17. It's worthy of some airtime. 
you know, it continues what, what the Lord is saying there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, the world will be safe. Nathan is following that. He's following that. Nobody sins like David sins without spinning a whole web of rationalizations about our sin. I mean, this is terrible stuff here. Now he's got to rationalize all this. He's got little webs of mechanism and defense mechanisms going. In fact, David's a perfect example of what happens all the time. We see it politically. We watch it all the time. Denial, denial, denial. Spin these little webs. Justify yourself. People in power do this all the time. People in places of leadership sacrifice a great deal to be in leadership. They do. They have no lives of their own. They're always in the public light. Always somebody following them with a camera or with a microphone. They get an enormous amount of opposition, a lot of criticism for anything that they do. They're public figures. And much of the criticism is not right. It's not right. Politically motivated. And we see that today. I mean, it's all, man, it's all over. But here's the thing. Because the person, whoever it might be, suffers, gives so much, deep inside seeds grow of self-pity, self-righteousness. Nobody knows what I have to put up with. Nobody knows all the things I have to do, all the things I've got to deal with. Nobody knows the sacrifices I've made for the public. For my life and my children and all of this, nobody understands. And then when the opportunity for a bribe or embezzlement or an affair comes up, the person in power says, I deserve this. It's all right. I deserve this. I give so much. And then along comes the temptation, and it happens to pastors as well. I deserve this. I give so much. Do this, do that. I deserve this. And you go out on the roof, and boom. Boom. Temptation, and when you have to cover up, you have to back away. You don't feel like a murderer. You don't feel like a liar. It's for the public good. I don't want other people to suffer because of what I've done. David wasn't saying I'm a murderer here. He says, it's collateral damage. I have to cover up now for my kingdom, for the people. I have to cover up for the church. I have to cover up for my job. I have to cover up for my wife or my husband or my family. I've got to cover up. It's for them. And that's what all people do, and that's what powerful people do. Everybody who sins develops that little web. And if you're trying to break through those defense mechanisms in people's lives, you don't rush in and say, cheater, Liar, murderer, you're the man. 
You're the woman. All the defense mechanisms go up and you set that person up for failure. And then you pat yourself on the back and say, I told them. I told them. I told the truth. Yes, they threw me out of the house, but I told them. I told them. Yes, you told them the truth in a way that the person couldn't accept it. God goes for conviction. God goes for conversion rather than condemnation. Nathan was a vehicle for the shrewd grace of God. He comes to David, tries to disarm him, not just condemn him. He tries to get him to put his self-defense shields down. Nathan takes his time. He disarms him because he's after the transformation of David's life. He's not just after being a champion for truth. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we apply it to our lives? I want everyone here to be a Nathan. I want everyone to be a Nathan. You have friends. You have people in your lives. They have flaws. They have sinned. There's character deficiencies. Be a Nathan. Don't just beat them up. This is wrong. That's wrong. You're wrong. You know, that, yeah, back and forth. There's a way of telling the truth that really doesn't honor the truth. You know that? There's a way of telling the truth that doesn't honor the truth. It turns truth into something unattractive. Your friends, your family needs you to be a Nathan. Speak the truth, New Testament says, in love. Speak the truth in love. So that even though they want to disbelieve you, they won't be able to because they see the goodwill in your heart. They see the goodwill in your heart. I also want you to know that you need Nathans. You need Nathans in your life. I need Nathans in my life. Everyone needs them. In Hebrews 3, 13, it says this, Exhort one another daily. We know the passage. Lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. We need Nathans in our lives. Be a Nathan. Gather some Nathans around you. What a verse that is, you know? The deceitfulness of sin here means the sin in your heart that always spins always has a web of things, always has defense mechanisms, and it puts you in denial. Most of our sins, our flaws, we can't see. And you need an Nathan. You need a friend. And you got to give him a hunting license <laughs> to go hunting. Look at my life. Look at what I'm doing. You have to give them the green light to speak into your heart and into your life. You got friends like that? I hope so. Friends like that? Let me just say another thing. Speaking the truth in love and talking about hard things doesn't happen on Facebook. Stop it.
If I want to talk to Mike, I'm going to talk to Mike. And I don't want what I'm saying to Mike for consumption. Doesn't happen electronically. You know that, right? I mean, you know that. If all your friends are on Facebook, you don't have a Nathan. You don't have anyone that's going to exhort you daily. So be a Nathan and have some Nathans in your life. Last thing, and that's what this verse, this passage teaches us, there is an assurance of pardon that we get from God, even for the worst sins. Look at verse 13. We dealt with it already, actually last week, the assurance of pardon. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Remember, we dealt with that. We talked about that. Again, his repentance is found and chronicled in Psalms 51. All that was going on in his heart and in his life and what he was thinking about at that time. Now think about this. It's not just that David did adultery. Now, now listen, I don't know if we've thought about this. It's not just adultery. It's not just murder. The fact is, listen, in order to kill Uriah, he had to have other soldiers killed as well. You know that. You know that. This, this, and, and he got other people to participate in this sin. The commander, Joab, he's, he's, he's participating in this. So the sin begins to have some tentacles to it. It begins to move. So Joab, who's the commander, had to send a group of men, not just Uriah. He couldn't say, Uriah, go take the city. No, 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 no. In order to kill Uriah, other people had to die. There's more than just Uriah going on here. This wasn't just a murder, adultery, and lying. This is nasty stuff. It's just nasty. What's in it? This, David, what's in your heart? How could you do this? These families destroyed. People destroyed. David's the king. Which means it's his job to keep this stuff from happening. So he's guiltier than anyone else who had, could have possibly done this. And yet... God comes through Nathan. He says, I've taken away your sins, you're not going to die. That blows my mind. <laughs> really? I mean, think about it. My goodness. How can God assure us of pardon no matter what we've done? And here's a thought, an answer perhaps. There's a remarkable, and I, and I looked at this just this week over and over again, a remarkable verbal likeness of this story of David standing before Nathan and that of Jesus standing before Pilate. You know that? It's interesting. The whole thing is interesting. Nathan says of David, you're the man. Pilate says of Jesus, behold the man. Behold the man. Two courtrooms, 2 Samuel 12, John 19. The courtroom of David, the courtroom of Pilate. And now the enclosed area, you, you see this more in, in, in British trials than you do here in America. 
the, the thing that keeps the, 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 uh, the person who's being accused in custody during the trial, he's placed in what is known as the dock or a cage. And he's in that dock or in that cage. So in both courtrooms, things are topsy-turvy. Things are going on here. The judge should be in the cage or the dock as the accused in David's case. David should have been there. But in Pilate's courtroom, the man in the dock, the man in the cage is Jesus. The man accused to be condemned is Jesus. He should be in the judgment seat. It's topsy-turvy. It's, it's the reverse. God sends Nathan, the prophet, to rectify the first situation, right? Let's, let's fix David. Let's get, let's get at this. You're the man, David. And suddenly the king who's in the judgment seat is now in the cage. And he's accused and he's repenting. In Pilate's courtroom, nobody shows up to put things right. No prophet shows up and says to Pilate or the Pharisees, you are the men. You're the ones. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. On the cross, nobody shows up. And he dies alone. And he dies forsaken. The judge of the whole earth, right? Who did nothing wrong. Condemned to die. Why? We know. So that we Davids, we Davids, when we repent, we get forgiveness. We get forgiveness. Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus stood in the cage, in the dock, where we deserve to be. He died so that we can live. And Jesus says, I was nailed to the cross for you, condemned in your place. You don't have to atone for your sin. You can't atone for your sin. When you repent, you're not earning your salvation. You're not earning your forgiveness. I earned your forgiveness with what I did on Calvary. Your repentance just accesses it, makes it available. Your repentance makes it available. Jesus says, I was condemned so that you can live. That's how you can be assured of your pardon and know that you have that pardon. Oh, the goodness of God, right? The goodness of God. So first, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Second, be a Nathan. Get some Nathans in your life to help you. And thirdly, doesn't matter what you've done. His mercy never fails. His mercy never fails. He's faithful and he's oh so good. He's such a good God. I've done some bad things in my life, some, some terrible things in my life. I'm not proud of. I don't care if you're a hitman for the mob. What you are, what you've done. I've had people come to my office this years ago and confess killing people. What David did is as bad as it gets. It's as bad as it gets. And there's assurance of mercy and pardon. That's what this tells me. I can be pardoned 
for my stuff, my sins. I can be pardoned for my sins because of the mercy of God and the grace of God. Repent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive it. One confession of faith, Westminster says this, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. And there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. This story tells me that. This passage of scripture tells me that. David was forgiven. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Even though we're, we're worse than we can imagine. There's assurance of pardon because of what Jesus has done. And you're so, so good to us. Father, help us to kill sin, those seeds that are in us. Help us to be Nathans, one to the other, knowing that no matter what we've done, there's pardon at the foot of the cross. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, this is our hope and this is our glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.